6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapters 15 through 18. There's another thing in this verse that's provocative, if you're very careful watching it. Thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Why? For I'm called by thy name, O Lord of hosts. It's one of these verses, and there's many of them, but they're very important, that link his word and his name in a very mystical way. His word and his name. Great, I enjoyed the... Now, by the way... Jeremiah doesn't say this, if I recall. I don't think he does, but we can, were those words sweet in his mouth? You bet. Where were they in his belly? So bitter they made him weep. He's the weeping prophet. So the experience of Jeremiah and Ezekiel I don't think is any different than John's experience in Revelation 10. There's a sweetness to it, and yet, as you digest it, there's a bitterness, because Jeremiah, on the one hand, was privileged to be on a face-to-face -face basis where he really is God's messenger to his nation. That's a position of privilege and something that Jeremiah cherished, despite the fact that his particular message was extremely bitter for him to deal with, the certainty of the judgment on the nation that he loved so dearly. Verse 17, I sat not in the assembly of the mockers, nor rejoiced. I sat, I sat alone because of my hand, or excuse me, of thy hand, for thou hast filled me with indignation. Why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable, which refuses to be healed? Wilt thou be altogether unto me like a liar, like the waters that fail? Strange word. The word there is the deceptive brook. And you and I are not familiar with the deceptive brook, but in Israel, in the Middle East, you are. And this is a brook that only occurs when there's flash floods. We see it in California. There's a lot of what we call the wash. We have different words for it, where it's a brook that's unreliable because it'll only be a brook when there's snow melting or some unusual circumstance. It's not a brook you can count on. So the concept among people in that terrain is a what's called a deceptive brook. It's a brook that when you go there and you need it, ain't there, you see. And so there's a concept of it. That's what these waters that fail is, is, is referring to. Only good after a downpour. Now, Jeremiah is complaining in the last few verses. You know, why is my pain prepared? I mean, he really is upset about this. You know, I, I have not been in the assembly of the mockers and rejoiced. I sat alone because of thy hand, for thou hast filled me with indignation. That is for these people. Why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable, which refuses to be healed? Will thou be altogether unto me like a liar, like waters that fail? In other words, he is really upset, Jeremiah is. And God answers him in the next few verses. This is a very amazing passage as God's, in effect, rebuking Jeremiah for his hour of despair. Verse 19, Therefore thus saith the Lord, If thou return, 
And you could always put the word repent in there. Huh? Then will I bring thee again, and thou, and thou shalt stand before me. And if thou take forth the precious from the vial, thou shalt be as my mouth. Let them return unto thee, but return not thou unto them. And I will make thee unto this people a fortified bronze wall. And they shall fight against thee, but they shall not prevail against thee. For I am with thee to save thee and to deliver thee, saith the Lord. And I will deliver thee out of the hand of the wicked, and I will redeem thee out of the hand of the terrible. What may not be obvious here, unless you read it very carefully, is that Jeremiah is grumping and complaining. God says, time out. Stop. Stop it right there, buddy. You know, turn around. And if you shape up, I will be with thee, and I will. you will be attacked, but I'll protect thee. And it's uh, quite an amazing thing. He's saying, he's in effect telling Jeremiah to uh, stop being so hasty at accusing the Lord, and don't waste his time on worthless statements. Let's get on with it. That's the flavor here. And there's examples of this with Moses, too. If you go through Exodus 4 and other places, you'll find that God in effect, says the same thing to Moses. And Jeremiah, though, if you study the book of Jeremiah, from this point on doesn't complain anymore. So he does what the Lord told him. Knock it off, and Jeremiah does. He grieves and bemoans a lot of things, but he no longer gets into this kind of a posture with the Lord. And these, these verses here are, are, are regarded by some scholars almost like a recommissioning of Jeremiah. He is protected from the powers that are going to do him. We all know about the plot on his life not long ago from his, his, uh, those people that were against him. And by the way, something I forgot to mention at that time, the people that were against Jeremiah tried to kill him but didn't succeed. They did succeed in assassinating Gedaliah, who, uh, Gedaliah, who was the governor of Judah after the fall of Jerusalem. So these guys didn't mess around. They knew how to pull off an assassination if they wanted to, but they were not able to assassinate Jeremiah. God, God protected him. So for what they, for whatever that's worth. Now, this whole business of the uh, many of the scholars here, there's lots of places we can go from here. Uh, uh, Jeremiah's joy and refreshment in the Word of God is a theme that's popular throughout the Scripture. It's interesting that there is a psalm it's called the Psalm of the Laver, and it's Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is a psalm, every verse of which extols the Word of God and its benefit to you. How you should eat it, digest it, refresh yourself in it, etc., and so on. And Psalm 119, we could go, we could go uh, those who are taking notes might want to look at verse 3, verse 97, verse 113. 119, 128, and 163. They all bear on this passage. 3, 97, 113, 119, 128, and 163. Now, I've always been interested in Psalm 119 because it is the longest psalm, the longest chapter in the Bible. And it is every verse on one subject, the Word of God. It is called the laver. And there's an aspect of the laver in the Old Testament. You all know the laver was the instrument in the tabernacle, right? And if you, rig if you rigorously study the tabernacle, you can't help but get fascinated by all the dimensions and materials and procedures to build it. God really laid out his specifications precisely 
except there's one dimension God left out. God omitted. There's no dimension on the labor. And that's deliberate. There's no limit to the washing of God's Word. Now, this labor in the Old Testament becomes the thing in which the priests immerse themselves in to be washed. You and I are washed judicially by His blood. But we're washed, and that's a once-for-all thing. The blood of Jesus Christ was shed for you once and only once. My apologies to the Catholics in the celebration of the Mass. You wash yourselves daily. How? In the Word, Ephesians 4, 4 and other places, right? The concept of the washing of the water by the Word is throughout the Scripture. Now, what's fascinating, this always has fascinated me, because in Revelation, that which is translated in the Old Testament does the molten sea, meaning the brass laver. You find the term molten sea in the quaint King James. Molten just is a translation for the word that means bronze. Then sea was this laver, this washing bowl. Molten sea is a quaint term. It's peculiar, but it's a, it's a term for the laver. In the New Testament, when the saints in, in chapter 2, I believe it is, or corrections, chapter 1, and then later on in chapter 4, are standing around the throne, the 24 elders, and they, they take their crowns and they lay them down on what? Are they standing and what do they lay their crowns on? The glassy sea. So that which you are washing in while you're on the earth is that which you are standing on before the throne. And you say, Chuck, you got to be kidding. Are you leading to another one of these puns? I sure am. The Holy Spirit uses the Word of God as a pun. We wash in it here and we stand on it there, just like the Samuel are standing on the promises. Boy, that's scriptural, right out of the book of Revelation. Interesting, it use of idioms. We're going to come to even more interesting one in another chapter or so, but thought I would touch upon that. The, the Psalm of the Labor, the longest uh, psalm, speaks idiomatically of the undimensioned extent of our washbowl, or the molten sea, as it's sometimes translated. Okay, the, the, for, the, for priestly washing, you and I need priestly washing. We need it daily. We need it daily. So don't confuse, as you read Paul's epistles, don't get confused between your washing, which is daily, and the concept that we are washed in his blood. Different issue. One's judicial and one is, is a you know, daily practic uh, pragmatic thing. Okay, now we get to chapter 16, and 16 through about 17, verse 18, is sometimes considered a, u a unit. It's more of this doom mixed up with bright promises uh, for the future. So there's a mix of both. And uh, we'll encounter as we go. It's dating is, again, like many of these things, scholars argue about it a little bit, but it looks like there's pretty good evidence that this, this passage that we're now Recognize that the book of Jeremiah is a compilation of his messages. They're not always in chronological order. causes a lot of confusion. But this passage from, about the, the, from 16.1 through about 17.18 probably was in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, so it's not any different than we've been pretty much uh, focusing on, and uh, we'll just jump in. Now, in the first part of this chapter, Jeremiah gets a shock. God's going to lay another trip on him, another requirement, another part of his ministry, which he does not take too comfortably. Chapter 16, verse 1, the word of the Lord came also unto me, saying, Thou shalt not take a wife, neither shalt thou have sons or daughters in this place. Boy, that's a blow, particularly to a Jew, because their life was 
built around that. This must have been a shock to Jeremiah. It's very unusual. In Israel specifically, but in general in the, in the Middle East, uh, being married was the norm. Having children was part of one's goal in life. In our, in our culture, it's, uh, and aside from the, the freedom, I'm not talking about the liberties and things, I'm just saying it's, it's more common, I think, in subsequent cultures for people to live celibate lives. But in Israel particularly, it was just very unusual. And the whole, uh, whole concept of marriage being a natural state is well documented in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and Deuteronomy 7 and elsewhere. Now, in, in New Testament times, non-marriages were also occasional but exceptional. Matthew 24 and 1 Corinthians 7 are a couple of places. It's more than just the marriage thing. You're going to find that this is buried in a passage in which Jeremiah is admonished, in effect, to withdraw from the daily life. He's not to marry, have children. He's not to celebrate joy nor grief with these people. God is instructing him to demonstrate his lack of identity with their culture, to, 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 to demonstrate his awareness that it's over, guys. It's over. You're going into captivity. Heavy trip. Thou shalt not take a wife, neither shalt thou ha uh, have sons or daughters in this place. In this place, see? For thus saith the Lord concerning the sons and concerning the daughters who were born in this place and concerning their mothers who bore them and concerning their fathers who begot them in this land. They shall die of grievous deaths. They shall not be lamented, neither shall they be buried, neither but they shall be as refuse upon the face of the earth, and they shall be consumed by the sword and by famine, and their carcasses shall be food for the fowls of heaven and for the beasts of the earth. Thus saith the Lord, enter not into the house of mourning, neither go to lament nor bemoan them, for I I have taken away my peace from this people, saith the Lord, even loving kindness and mercies. Both the great and the small shall die in this land. They shall not be buried, neither shall men lament for them, nor cut themselves, nor make them uh, make themselves bald for them, neither shall men tear themselves for them in mourning to comfort them uh, for the, uh, the dead. Neither shall men give the cup of consolation to drink for their father or for their mother." And thou shalt not go also down to the house of feasting to sit with them who eat and drink. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will cause to cease out of this place in your eyes and in your days the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride. Does Jeremiah get across his message? Heavy trip. Jeremiah, you know, I'm always amused because all the commentators point out that his style is not like lofty like that of Isaiah. Well... He sure gets his point across, very graphically. God is upset. It's near term. It's coming on you guys. So you guys don't have kids. They're going to just be more carcasses on the, on the fat battlefield. And this idea of not being buried is particularly offensive to the Jewish mind because one of the things that they focused on was to be buried properly. And the idea of not only dying but being unburied is a form of shame that that was, yeah, you know, that's almost uniquely Jewish. So that they're, uh, and they're just going to be consumed by the sword, by famine, and so forth, and, and uh, heavy, heavy stuff. Now, a couple of th references in here that might you might miss, uh, this idea of cutting themselves and making themselves bald were practices that they obviously practiced there, but by the way, they were also forbidden under the Torah. 
In Leviticus 19 and 21 and Deuteronomy 14, you will find passages which forbid this sort of thing. These are classical Canaanite styles of expression to cut yourselves and to, uh, to uh, make yourself bald, to tear your clothes. All those kinds of things were, were expressions of mourning and, and grief that were forbidden to be done. But he's saying, uh, you know, that you neither will you do that because it's going to be, uh, you're not gonna, you know, you're just going to be, it's over. So Jeremiah's um, withdrawal uh, from the, both the joy and the grief is intended by God to be a sign to them that God is serious. It's about to happen. God's messenger is not partaking. Verse 10, And it shall come to pass when thou shalt show this people all these words that they shall say unto thee, Why hath the Lord pronounced all this great evil against us? Or what is our iniquity? What is our sin that we have committed against the Lord our God? Then thou shalt say unto them, Because your fathers have forsaken me, saith the Lord, and have walked after other gods, and have served them, and have worshipped them, and have forsaken me, and have not kept my law. And ye have done worse than your fathers, for behold, ye walk every one after the imagination of his evil heart, that they may not hearken unto me. Therefore will I cast you out of this land into a land that ye know not, neither ye nor your fathers. And there shall ye serve other gods day and night, where I will not show you favor." Get the tone of that. You want to serve other gods? Terrific. I'm going to send you to the land where that's all they do is worship them day and night. Babylon, the seat of idolatry. One of the fascinating studies that as a biblical scholar you can dig into at your leisure is to study Babylon, and we typically get into this in some depth from the book of Revelation because in chapters uh, 13, 17, and 18, and so on, uh, God speaks of the great whore and so on, and in 17 and 18 particularly, their expression emerges called Mystery Babylon. And from chapter 17 and chapter 18, we have two views of this strange creature. One is, a, uh, is commercial, secular, and the other one is ecclesiastical. But in both cases, Mystery Babylon is destroyed ultimately, finally, in the book of Revelation. But to understand what that word means, what that idiom means, one has to do some historical research and find out what was the literal Babylon all about. And I won't take the time now, but I'll just point out to you that what you will discover when you dig into all of that is that Babylon is the fountain of all idolatry. We're not talking about Babylon starting here. Babylon started under the first tyrant on the planet Earth, a guy by the name of Nimrod, founded the town called Babel, Tower to God. And that reaches a climax of sorts in, I think it's Genesis 11, with the, the confusion of tongues. And so if you want to start that study, you could get the Genesis tapes, uh, chapter 11, or just pick up the Revelation tapes and get into the 1718 thing where we get into some of this. But you'll discover that under the rise of the Babylonian Empire, those practices are enforced upon the known world at that time. When the Babylonians get conquered by the uh, Persians, that seat of Satan moves from Babylon to Pergamos. And then when that's when the Persians and the Greeks get give yield to the Romans and the Roman Empire emerges, the seat of that religious system goes to pagan Rome. 
And these things get new names, but it's the same ideas, and they find their way into our culture in a variety of different ways. Don't just pick on the Catholics. Um, that uh, uh, will, we find from prophecy, surface in extreme strength in the end times. And so a study of Mystery Babylon, the, the uh, understanding that the term Babylon is almost synonymous with idolatry. It's the fountain of it. There's many kinds of idolatry that are not necessarily Babylonian, but they all take their roots there. So that's part of uh, what we're seeing here. And so there's a particular pain for the the chosen people of God who are called to not make any graven images in the Decalogue, in the Ten Commandments, but to worship him only. What a ironic punishment for them than to be uh, consigned for 70 years into Babylon where enforced idol worship is the order of the day. You want to worship idols? You're going to worship idols. Verse 14, Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that it shall no more be said, The Lord liveth, who brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But the Lord liveth, who brought the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands where he hath driven them, and I will bring them again into their land that I gave unto their fathers. Oh, I love this passage for several reasons. First of all, if the more conscious you are of the Old Testament idiom, you, you, you're, the more you're aware of the fact that whenever God identified himself, he was the God that took your fathers out of the land of Egypt. The exodus of Egypt, the miracle of the exodus, is an identity event all through the Old Testament. It would be interesting to take a concordance and count the number of times that God refers to himself, either his prophets refer to him or refer to himself as the God that took your fathers out of the land of Egypt, crossing the Red Sea, that whole routine. And the Exodus event is a major identity with the God of the Old Testament. Here in this passage, it's provocative. He says, Behold, the days will come, saith the Lord, that they, it shall no more be said, The Lord liveth who brought up the children out of the land of Egypt. In other words, that's not going to be the remarkable identity. But rather, the Lord liveth who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands where he hath driven them, and I will bring them again into their land that I gave unto their fathers. Jeremiah, I'm sure, perceived that these words by the Holy Spirit referred to their being regathered from Babylon back to the land under Ezra and Nehemiah, as it turned out. And indeed they did. Under Ezra, they got the authority to go back and rebuild the temple, and under Nehemiah, they got further authority to rebuild the wall, and that becomes a trigger point for Daniel's 70-week prophecy. Terrific. But it's interesting that the Holy Spirit gave Jeremiah words here that go far beyond the return of the Babylonian captivity. Do you ever hear God being referred to as the God that brought the children of Israel back out of Babylon? Is that an identity piece? So I don't believe that this prophecy is fulfilled in their return under Ezra and Nehemiah. Notice what it says, that he'll be known as the he who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north. All invaders came from the north because of the Fertile Crescent. So even the Babylonians, which were really eastward, came, attacked them from the north. But, the, but the, uh, from the land of the north is something else. What's in your newspapers about once a week? some issue about Soviet Jewry being allowed to emigrate. Isn't that interesting? And from all the lands where he hath driven them. Isaiah 11, 11 says, When I gather them the second time from the outcasts of Judah, from all over the world. Where? Back in their land. 
That's going to be the big event. When is his regathering the first time after Babylon? When's his regathering the second time? Started May 14th of 1948. That's going on today. That's the fulfillment of this prophecy. Now, it may not seem that big to everybody right now, because in, other than some Bible nuts like you and I, most people don't attribute the return of Israel and the establishment in the land. When David Ben-Gurion announced the state of Israel that famous evening, he used the authority of the book of Ezekiel to name the country. The new, the new home, homeland, the, the state would be called the state of Israel. But most of us, other than the Bible, don't attribute all the return and the, the, the thing to God's hand. There's going to be an event, an invasion of Israel by the Soviet Union, described in detail in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And if you haven't gotten those tapes, I encourage you to do so, because it's timely, it's near, it's happening soon. The events that were in the way have been removed. I used to give tapes. You can find some of my tapes floating around from 1970, 71, where I got into Ezekiel in those days. And... Uh, there's one difference between those days and today. This, the Shah of Iran, I used to say that as long as Iran is pro-West, relax, Ezekiel 38 can't happen. There were five attempts in the Shah's life. When, his, when the Shah of Pahlavi falls, that's the signal. And some 10 years later, I got telephone calls from all over the world, from executives at management clubs and stuff that had heard that screwy tape and said, Chuck, where was that again? And uh, because Iran is no longer pro-West and the events that are... Pro described in Ezekiel 38 are ready to spring. Could happen tomorrow, could happen six months from now. I'm simply telling you I'm expecting it shortly. Ezekiel 38. And by the way, I'm not one of these guys that believes the rapture has to occur before Ezekiel 38. I do think the rapture has to occur before Daniel's 70 week starts, but that's got nothing to do with Ezekiel 38. Ezekiel 38 can happen this year, next year, anytime. And I believe it will. And it may result in some very, very unusual events for the United States. And you can get those tapes and dig that in, into that yourself. But the Lord, that's going to shock Israel as well as the world in the, into the realization that God is once again dealing with his country, this strange country called Israel. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.